This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. It is Sunday. We have a special interview for you today. It is with none other than the famous Dr. Barbara Schmidt. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Schmidt. Uh, Daphna was actually on vacation that week, so I was assisted by the Incubator's co-founder, Dr. Rooney Toms. And it was a tremendous honor to speak to Dr. Schmidt, and we're very proud to reopen the Giants of Neonatology series with one of the greats in Dr. Barbara Schmidt. So for those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Schmidt, she's a professor of pediatrics and senior scholar um, in the Center for Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. She's also a staff neonatology in the Division of Neonatology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania Health System. It's a great honor. And without further ado, please join us in welcoming to the show, Dr. Barbara Schmidt. Dr. Schmidt, good morning. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Ben, and good morning, Ruin. So um, I like to start off these interviews with with um, with people like yourselves that have had such an amazing career uh, by starting with the origin story of your career in neonatology. Uh, you trained in the late seventies when the field of neonatology was really still in its infancy, and I am wondering at that time what was it that attracted you. To this field of medicine specifically, considering there there wasn't much of a neonatology then. Well, um, I consider myself um, as part of at least the second um, generation of neonatal specialists. We were already standing on the shoulders of giants who'd come before us. So, uh, yes, it was still, as you correctly say, in its infancy, this field, but uh, I was clearly not one of the first line of pioneers. So, we had people to look to and to look up to. Um, and I chose neonatology in hindsight um, during my pediatric residency, which was still in, in Germany, um, because of all the rotations, uh, it was clearly the one I enjoyed the most, even though I enjoyed many others as well. But it stood out for me um, primarily because it wasn't limited to a particular organ system. It, it gave um, us the opportunity to be the sort of last generalists uh, inside the hospital in acute care. 
um, other than maybe pediatric ICU, which was even less developed. So I did not seriously consider that. But that was, I think, for me, the main reason for choosing neonatology. Um, you are you are famous for being an, an amazing mentor. I've I've spoken to some of your mentees, and they and they they only have great things to say about about you as a mentor. And I am wondering, since we're talking about your your the inception of your career in neonatology, are there any mentors or key influences in your career that that have inspired you to pursue uh, both neonatology and certain areas of research that you've that you've um, pursued? So to be perfectly honest, um, and maybe that was again a, a sign of the times, certainly, um, um, I did not really have a single man- mentor who stood out in the sense that you and your generation would understand what, what a mentor does. I had role models. I had people I could turn to for specific advice. As I said, I had people who I admired. I started really my outside of my residency in Freiburg in Germany. I started my neonatology training at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, and that was already then in the early 80s by, by, by for several years, for many years since the 60s, a very famous neonatal ICU. And when I uh, did my fellowship training there it was the last years of Paul Swire, who was originally uh, an Englishman who had really started the unit. And he was um, just um, an incredible gentleman and a superb clinician and um, also scientist. Um, and I looked up to Karen Pape, um, who probably, do you still know of Karen Pape? Um, because she is an interesting lady. I, I will just briefly explain why I looked up to her. She actually, um, is somebody who essentially dropped out of mainstream academic medicine. And, um, she was an iconoclast. She turned a lot of cherished beliefs on its head. But um, to put things into perspective, while she was still a neonatal consultant at the Hospital for Sick Children when, when I arrived and during my training. And to just put her on the map um, so you understand, she has actually done enormous things for neonatology that most people probably um, are not even aware of because, you know, people get forgotten very quickly. Um, so she had written a very famous book at the time that should be still famous on hemorrhage ischemia and the perinatal brain together with an eminent London-based pathologist. And really in this book, that it was really the output of her postgraduate studies in London, uh, she put basically the mechanisms that lead to these brain injuries on the map. And much of what's in this book that was published, I think, in 79 or something is still valid today. So it's a classic. Wow. Um, perhaps wow. more impressive for you guys is she was actually the first, the absolute first based on publication sequence, who introduced the world to the feasibility of detecting brain damage with ultrasound through the anterior fontanelle. It was wow. simply wow. a letter to the Lancet at the time, but she was the first. And then she dropped out of academe and worked on the sidelines. She also had neurocognitive sort of training 
and she b- before her death um she wrote a book that i think you young guys should all read it's called the boy who could run but not walk and in it wow. she turns everything you've been taught about cerebral palsy on its head okay. oh, i'm going to look so, that up right now yeah so she was somebody who i had and still have enormous admiration and respect for because at some level not to the extent that she was but i've also had a bit of a rebellious spirit and challenging prevailing opinion and dogma that 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 i always like to do myself mm-hmm. and so you you're crossing the atlantic from germany to to north america to do the fellowship in toronto and i am just curious as to what prompted you then to not go back to Europe and and sort of pursue a career in North America uh, what were what were the factors that came into that uh, decision well you're absolutely right and i have to say i never really formally emigrated right i i i came to toronto oh, okay. for um uh, postgraduate studies and then my fellowship um and i actually had a job at the university children's hospital in fribourg to go back to And I wish I could say it was science or, you know, the hospital or all these things that made me stay, but it is much simpler than that. It was that I met my husband. Um, I think you know him, Harishka Polani. Um, in yes. my first, you know, few weeks on the neonatal ICU and, and, um, and then Canada and, and Ontario became Since we are both neonatologists, both looking for uh, a good job, became a very good place for us to um, to do that. Yeah, those things happen for sure very quickly. But but uh, one thought I had too, which I, I find interesting, when we you were telling us about uh, Karen Puppet, um, kind of the people that influence you along your career and. Um, And have really a, a profound effect on on maybe even how you perceive neonatology and how you how you practice. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. I feel as though there's a slight decrease in the collaboration across the Atlantic because I mean, at, even at that time, Central European neonatology was a growing field as well. Uh, where do you think that kind of collaboration between? say, Europe and the U.S. and other countries. Where are we? Has it improved or has it? you know, stayed the same. You know, I'm not sure I can really give an authoritative answer on this. Um, I can only say that in my own trials, um, um, certainly the caffeine trial um, and also um, the oxygen saturation targeting trial, one of the five trials that, that, that um, I was leading, Um, if that, that were the Neoprom collaboration, so caught the Canadian oxygen trial. We, we always had European, um, sites, um, involved. They were all international trials and they went across the Atlantic and they went across the Pacific. And quite frankly, uh, these were all trials. We didn't have a formal network, right? They were trials of friends and friends of friends. Um, so, um, I, I hope that there isn't a decrease. I hope that you're not um, 
right, that, that there is a decrease. I've just noticed that some of the output seems to um, shift a little bit. I think the Europeans is a big generalization, but I think they were a little bit late to the, you know, organizing themselves into big pan-European trials, which they are certainly now doing more of. But I think the same is true in Australia and New Zealand, mm -hmm. um, where we also see a lot of output and a lot of trial activity, and some of that crosses the oceans and, and some doesn't. Mm -hmm. For sure. It's interesting that you mentioned some of your trials. I mean, as I as we were preparing for this interview, the, you, you've you've been such a prolific researcher that it's it's hard um, to decide what what to ask you about. But but I wanted maybe um, to to start with the with the cap trial and and your work on caffeine. And I am wondering if you could actually walk us through the inception of the cap trial, specifically how the field of really neonatology worked its way towards this new quote-unquote drug that was much better tolerated than the alternatives at the time, like theophylline. And what was, I think it, it, what's interesting to me is that at the time that the CAP trial starts off, people are using caffeine. And what was the reaction of the community towards the trial of, of caffeine for long-term outcomes? So, so you, you, you are right. People were using, I was using caffeine. Um, it, it was in our cookbooks even, um, even though it wasn't licensed in Canada and it wasn't really licensed anywhere. Um, it, it just, um, not even while we were starting to think about the trial, I think the actual US FDA license came in 1999 and I actually got the FDA hearing documents under the Freedom of Information Act to incorporate into our grant application. Um, but it was an old drug. It had been around uh, since the 1970s and publications on its pharmacokinetics and so forth, um, very small trials, mostly counting apnea as an outcome, um, had, been, had been around. Um, so why did we do the CAP trial? That is basically your question, right? Or how did we come up with this notion that this trial should be done um so i tell yes, you yes i think i think that's more of that, that, that that's more of my question i i think i understand why the cap trial was done and why it needed to be done but i am just um i'm just curious about how what was the the general feeling like about the need for the trial as we are talking about a medication that was gaining in popularity at the time and i think um When something is being used and seems to be working, it feels like, well, shouldn't we just keep going? Well, it, look, it works. Why, why the need for the trial? And I'm just wondering, what was the atmosphere like in the field of neonatology when it came to, um, to the, the inception of the CAP trial? Well, I think the, the, the easiest answer to tell you what the initial response was, was uh, to, to cite my own husband who thought I'd gone crazy. Uh, when I floated the idea <laughs> with him of doing um, placebo-controlled caffeine trial in, you know, in 2,000 babies. Um, so what happened is, and, you know, before I had started to dig into the literature and what we actually knew about this drug, um, I would have responded the same way. Oh, well, you know, it reduces apnea, and so what's the problem? 
Um, but I learned very quickly that, um, you know, once you presented the evidence or rather the lack of evidence on its efficacy beyond counting apneas and on its safety and why there should be concerns about the safety to people, they changed their minds. And, um, so wow. I, I, in a nutshell, um, equipoise is not a synonym for ignorance, right? So once people understood what the evidence actually was and what we knew about the potential balance of uh, risks and benefits, uh, many, not everybody, of course, but many people came around to the point that, um, you know, quite a few, there were 35 centers internationally in the trial, um, voluntarily joined the trial because, as I said, it wasn't a network where you had to do the trials that were um, going forward. Um, so the interesting piece here is that the parents, once we started with the trial and, and I did a lot of the initial um, consent discussions myself as well, um, parents immediately understood that this trial needed to be done. Once you exp and, and the more informed they were and the more educated, the more easily they understood because once you explain to a parent to offer of a very preterm infant that you're giving just as a loading dose a, a caffeine dose that is equivalent to six cups of good coffee, good strength coffee, they are horrified because you know during the pregnancy they've been told that maybe you know a cup is okay, but not too much, don't drink too much coffee, and here we go and load them up, right, with very high doses, mm -hmm. even if you refer to the standard doses. So the parents were actually the ones who many signed up because they were hoping to get placebo. <laughs> <laughs> it's I really true. I was expected to hear that. I, <laughs> uh -huh. that's, that's crazy. And so I wanted to highlight uh, a paper that you're publishing um, that's that's online actually right now, head of print in the Journal of Pediatrics, called Medical Progress, um, Caffeine for Apnea Prematurity, Too Much or Too Little of a Good Thing. I really enjoyed this paper. And in there you say, and I quote, very low birth weight infants should only be considered for caffeine therapy soon after birth if they, one, are extremely immature and receive positive airway pressure without an endotracheal tube. Number two, are weaning from medical ventilation, mechanical ventilation towards a trial of extubation, or three, have documented apnea. What do you think, Dr. Schmidt, about the therapeutic drift that has happened since the publication of the original caffeine studies, where some of us as clinicians perceive that because the evidence that's available, uh, we can reasonably then assume that more caffeine given sooner for longer mm -hmm. must be good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think if you think, if you, thanks for referring to that, uh, paper, which, as you say, is, is, is pre-proof right now. Um, I wrote it because I'm very concerned about, um, about this, uh, drift. Um, uh, and, um, because, um, it, it's it's human nature almost, and it's not the only drug to which this has happened. That if something works, more must be better is 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 the sort of um, uh, often um, the the way people operate. Um, but 
um, if you speak to people who understand the, the, the pharmacology of this drug, um, and um, they are very concerned. So, for example, Jack Aranda, whom I quote, who, who's really Mr. Caffeine. I mean, he did all the original studies in out of Montreal in the 1970s and early 80s on the pharmacology and so pharmacodynamics. Um, they are very concerned about about uh, higher doses um, than the ones we we tested in the CAP trial because. Um, the mechanism of action um, is, um, as a respiratory stimulant, doesn't necessarily require these higher doses. And these higher doses have potential consequences that are very hard to predict. I'm not saying that um, higher doses are going to be unacceptable from here on. I don't know. But the right studies haven't been done to... Uh, show that they are both more effective and safe. The, the the research that is out there, if you, you know, there was actually a recent Cochrane review. I think it got a fair bit of uh, traction also in in the social media and your Twitter accounts that, uh, that you young people are using. Um, and it concludes that it reduces BPD. Well, um, so... It included actually um, trials in which, I mean, it, 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 it said there were six trials that they included, but that included trials that in the control group used less caffeine than standard dose. So what kind of comparison is that, right? Uh, or mm-hmm. it used, um, uh, even though they said they wouldn't include those, it, uh, it did include one trial where only the loading dose was higher. And then that's the St. Louis single center trial, right? And then the maintenance doses were um, the same. And so I don't know what one is to make of just one single loading dose being higher. So I didn't include it in in the table in this paper yeah. when I looked at this evidence. But um, so you're coming up with very few babies who have received these higher doses. And then these higher doses are not just one higher dose. They're all over the map, right? The loading dose goes from mm-hmm. 20 to 40 to 80. And the maintenance in some cases, well, it goes up to 20, so double what um, what we have used. But they are not um, all the same. And the other problem is the children who have the most apnea because of their immaturity are the micropremies, right? The extremely preterm mm-hmm. babies. And these trials didn't really include those. As important, so so I think you know it's a um, it's something that that does concern me. I, I, it concerns me uh, as long as people don't do the right trials and get to the bottom of this question. It is a question that needs to be answered for sure. It may well be that it's better, but we just don't know. Yeah, it's an important discussion for sure. And I, and I guess you know it's such a. Um, Commonly used medication, and we as neonatologists, it's just something that we have in our bio, in our pockets, and use every single day. Uh, maybe that's why we have the f- feels or we have the freedom to go out. Uh, what, however, what do you think about the potential kind of anti-inflammatory effects of of caffeine at the alphalin and the potential neuroprotective aspects of it? Um, it 
It may be, but again, I think the evidence we have for it so far is is um, not sufficient um, to use it um, for that indication. And you know, the more we looked at the data uh, in the CAP trial, typically then with post hoc analyses, of course, but um, the benefit that we see even up to 11 years in motor impairment, right? The reduced motor impairment, um, much of that, potentially all of it based on the confidence limits, um, could be explained purely by the action of caffeine as a respiratory stimulant because the single variable that that predicts so much of this improvement on motor impairment is the reduced time on um, uh, positive airway pressure, any type of device that delivers that. That is really such a powerful uh, predictor. And it is more predictive than time on oxygen. It is um, more predictive than time on intubation. Now, you could argue that that could also be an anti-inflammatory effect and not, you know, but, but, you know, think, if we think about why do kids fail extubation, it is first and foremost because of apnea and periodic breathing, right? Why do they fail coming off SIPA? Not because they have lung disease and some inflammatory process, but because they don't breathe enough, right? Yeah, yeah. In in that same paper, you you mentioned something that I had not really considered uh, up until I read it, which was some of the inequities that are prevalent worldwide when it comes to the availability of caffeine in low and middle income countries. In that paper, you mentioned that you conducted an informal survey of your international colleagues. And so I am wondering if you could tell us a little bit more what those discussions were like and what exactly is that disparity that is still happening today despite caffeine being now quote unquote such an old drug um in low and middle middle and low and middle income countries so um this is again something that um has um has upset me and and I've been thinking about and talking about uh, informally for a number of years. Um, and um, inevitably, when you talk about the trial, when you talk about caffeine, and, you know, I've been traveling a fair bit over, over the years, um, speaking in, um, in, on every continent, basically, um, about um, caffeine and apnea, um, you learn very quickly from your audience what the problems are. And it, uh, the problems range from not having any caffeine in the country. Uh, uh, that is getting a little less common, but there are still totally, you know, white spots on, on, on the global map. Um, but where it is available, it is often unaffordable. And, um, mm. It's not just happening to me. Um, I think I'm allowed to quote because I've recently, my former uh, boss at uh, uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia job, Eric Eichenwald, who's obviously also, you know, very knowledgeable and interested in apnea, just told me recently that within the last few months, 
um, he gave a talk, I believe it was somewhere in Central America, I believe it was Panama, and he talked about apnea and caffeine for an hour, and only then people in his audience um, told him that they can't actually use it because they can't afford it. And wow. to be perfectly honest, I've met people in the States who say it's very expensive. So I don't know, really, I haven't explored that in, in great detail, but um, it's certainly um, prohibitively expensive in, in many parts of um, what I called in the paper middle and low-income countries. Mm-hmm. Or it's only available or people only in private hospitals but not in publicly funded hospitals can pay it. Or the parents are required to pay it and, of course, often can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happens often, doesn't it? In, so I think in, this is something that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Meat Johnson. Reckitt Meat Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive infamil portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meatjohnson.com. You've written, like I said before, on so many different pathologies and therapies. But after reviewing your body of work, Dr. Schmidt, I mean, I think one of the things that do come out is, uh, I think, in my opinion, at least, a deep commitment to neurodevelopmental outcomes of preterm neonates, right? And you've written extensively about research methodology as well. I am curious about what is your assessment of the way in which neurodevelopmental research is conducted today. What are we getting right and what are we getting wrong? Okay, so um, we chose in the end um, for the endomethacine prophylaxis trial already and then certainly for the caffeine trial and later for the oxygen trial. Um, This outcome at 18 months uh, at the time Uh, of death or disability um, because we were in each case examining the safety of a therapy that was already in use, right? In prophylactic endomethacin, the same thing. People were using it, uh, especially in the US. It was, I think, most commonly used there. And it has obvious short-term benefits. And we didn't set out to refute that. We, we knew it reduced PDAs, symptomatic PDAs, and we knew it reduced severe IVH. Um, but indomethacin given to a you know, kid under a kilo in the first 24 hours of life is a very powerful drug. And we did um, the indomethacin trial, the TIP trial, um, with this long-term outcome, again, to examine the safety of this routine approach. Because the moment you talk about prophylaxis, you even have a greater uh, responsibility to examine safety. Because inevitably, for any prophylaxis, you're going to expose a lot of babies uh, who don't stand to gain anything. So with respect to what really matters here, the IVH, right? So, I mean, in in the TIP study, 13% in the in the control group and 9% roughly in the in the uh, treatment group got severe IBH. So the vast majority of the kids who were exposed, and now even those rates would have come down typically in, in today's neonatal ICUs if they do a good job. So 
Um, so the vast majority, even then, of kids who were given prophylactic indomethacin didn't even benefit because they weren't destined to develop severe IVH, or they were among the group, the two-thirds who get treated and still develop severe IVH. So with something like that, you had to um, ensure that such a powerful drug that doesn't just work in the brain or on the PDA, but also works on the kidneys and all sorts of other organs, um, that it is safe. And that data, again, was just not there. So that's why we designed the trial that way. And caffeine, we already talked about the background, why we did it. Um, I I do believe um, that um, disability matters. I also believe it matters to most parents. I know where I think you're going with this um, question because there is um, a lot of um, debate, sometimes quite fierce debate right now, whether, um, you know, parents um, would agree with uh, certain components that we combined in this outcome of disability. Um, things can, we, things can always be improved upon, but we have to be very careful that in this debate, we don't end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, the first thing to say is when, you know, did we in the 1990s when we designed TIP and when we designed CAP, both of them were designed in the 1990s. No, we did not have a formal process where we uh, consulted parents about these outcomes. We were actually, I think, arguably the first with the TIP study, if I'm remembering this correctly, who actually had such a long-term outcome as a primary outcome. But, um, you know, it's absolutely right to have discussions with parents and it's critical nowadays in 2023. But parents don't agree with each other. And I know that. I've been a clinician and a very consummate clinician all my life. And I know parents who, you know, um, who, 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 who will cope with everything, every outcome and others, not at all. And families have different mm -hmm. values. And how are you going to get around that issue of variability? among the parents, who are you going to listen to? So at some point, I think this current debate is getting to me a little lopsided um, as I'm following it. Um, I don't know where you stand on, on this. But um, I think I, just because some parents says cerebral palsy doesn't matter doesn't mean cerebral palsy is a desirable outcome, right? No, I, I agree with you, and I think you're you're putting your finger on the on the pulse there. Where uh, how how do we get a consensus opinion of parents that is both um, both a consensus but also uh, representative of a very diverse uh, group of people? That's not really where I was trying to get to with that question. Even though I have questions about like counseling and things like that, but I'm wondering. What I, I'm going to, I guess, try to clarify a little bit. When we are looking at neurodevelopmental outcomes, right, we've, we've sort of agreed as a field that the Bailey is sort of the standard and that this is how we measure outcomes. And, and I think that it's now part of the framework of how we evaluate uh, neurodevelopment. Um, but it still, to me, sometimes feels like a very imperfect science. Um, and so I'm curious about, and, and obviously the ideal way to assess the neurodevelopment of a child is to follow them up to like four or five years. And, and that has its own set of problems with retention and, and making sure that you don't lose too many patients to follow up. And so I guess I was, I was 
asking you more from a research methodology standpoint, um, the way in which the the tools okay. that we have at our disposal to measure long term outcomes, and and right. do do you perceive that that what we have right now is 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 sufficient, and and if not, where do you what what are you hoping that we can reach as a field in terms of optimizing how we measure neurodevelopment? Right. Yeah, that's a very important question. And I do have perhaps even a provocative, um, developed a provocative view on this. Um, you're right. The Bailey is a very imperfect test and it doesn't help that it radically changes from one edition to the next in terms of what it actually measures and how it is calibrated. Um, but I would go, and yes, you're right. The longer you follow, the more you, um, the more reliably um, you can determine cognition, for example. But I would actually go beyond that and say, certainly as a primary outcome, I would not in future even include cognition. I would focus mm. on uh, motor function and um, where, where appropriate, uh, vision and hearing, although these are thankfully nowadays low frequency uh, problems in in most of the populations that we study. Why not cognition? Because um, as long as we live in an in unequal world in most parts of the world, um, the cognitive development of a child is particularly as the child gets older, heavily, heavily influenced by the environment. And um, mm -hmm. uh, we have seen that in some of our data in the CAP trial and many other people. I mean, the socioeconomic factors and social advantage or disadvantage have such an enormous influence on cognitive development. And unless you work in a system where much of that gets taken care of by state-funded, high-quality, very early uh, kindergarten and schools that sort of um, reduce the impact of these disadvantages, um, I think we are not really measuring biologic effects by the time we measure cognition uh, later in childhood. We are measuring more of, you know, the environment in which the child grew up. You know, these huge differences mm -hmm. in children who grow up in affluent, educated environments in terms of how many words they speak by the time they are three or four years old. I mean, it's just enormous. So I personally think um, cognition is, a, is an iffy um, outcome for that reason, if we really want to measure uh, the impact of our neonatal therapies. Yeah. Wow, that's excellent points. I mean, it just goes to show how complex the field that we're that you've been studying is, and how complex outcomes are. Just to piggyback on that a tiny little bit, I mean, you've been part of. You said you're the second generation of neonatologists. I would almost call it maybe somewhat of the golden age of neonatology in the sense that you participated in the TIP trial, the CAP trial, the COT trial, these large randomized controlled trials. Um, how do you actually see the future um, of research in neonatology? Is it more of the same of these large trials? Is that should that be the goal, or should we rethink some degree of research strategy, study design, invent new tools such as maybe virtual patients and predictive models on on uh, on, on the studies that have already done? What are your thoughts around that? 
Well, uh, we we certainly shouldn't uh, keep doing what we've always done. There's always room for improvement, and and there's always going to be ways to do um, the to 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 do the studies and the trials more, uh, you know, in a smarter uh, fashion. Um, the one thing I would like to say is um, I hope um, that people don't stop doing experimental research, and I. I, I obviously count randomized trials. Those are experiments um, uh, among those um, because doing, you know, people, some people have this notion that with mega data, you know, you can, you can answer every question. Um, but um, I think we need, we need observational data. They absol- absolutely um, uh, play a role, but um, they're not sufficient to answer all the questions that need answering. But um, as for the trials, um, I think, you know, ironically, the pandemic has shown us some ways of how um, things can be done when when there is a will and when there are the resources put against it um, to to do them. And, you know, platform trials come, come to mind. Obviously, they have their limitations as well, and people will find out more than I already known, but it's a very attractive um, way um, to um, to answer more than one question at the same time. Um, I, I'm sure there are going to be, and there are already um, all sorts of innovations. And quite frankly, um, yeah, were we in a golden age? I don't know. We didn't we didn't see it like this at the time. And but perhaps the 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 sizes of the treatment effects or the difference we could make was perhaps a little bit bigger than now it's more like um, even more incremental than than it was already then I sometimes think but at the same time you know you talked about mentees um, then um, that you've spoken to when I look at just you know the the, the young people we had the privilege of uh, working with in Philadelphia, um, and I could name right off the bat four people at least. Um, it's actually very heartening to me to see um, the kind of work they now do as an, and launch and succeed doing as um, now independent investigators. So that gives me a lot of faith in in um, in the future of neonatology, actually, because they will also then again train. Uh, a next generation, right? For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my question for the Dr. Schmidt consult. I have, uh, y- you've had um, a-, a-, a career that has been stellar. And I am wondering when we are all, there's some, there's some commonality to your career and our career in light of the questions we're being asked by parents. And, and inevitably, Parents will ask us, um, "Will my baby be okay? Right? Well, how will my baby do?" And and we and 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 how we counsel families in light of this specific question when it comes to long term outcomes is very difficult and is and is something that that skill comes with experience. I am wondering, what are your tips and what is your approach to counseling families, knowing what you know today about the long term outcomes of extremely low birth weight? babies what do you tell these families when you're in the NICU and how how do you how do you modulate the 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 
your counseling based on the data that we have without being too optimistic, not too pessimistic, and so on. So um, the, all of this, of course, requires um, always having um, established a relationship or working on establishing a relationship with the family. And um, that includes um, working out um, who they are, what their values are, uh, what they want to know, not what I want to tell them, but what they want to know. And listening is, is as opposed to talking, uh, is, is a big piece, um, of any consult. Um, the next point I would make is that what you say and answer even to specific questions, uh, changes over time, right? So, uh, before delivery, it's a completely different set of, numbers uh, then after delivery because uh, you now know that the baby you know if it's an extremely preterm baby has already uh, come safely out of the delivery room which you didn't know necessarily before uh, delivery and then uh, as the child gets older in the NICU the 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 um Mortality risk obviously declines because most of the mortality is early on, right? And then sort of declines. It doesn't go to zero, but it declines. But um, as far as long-term outcome, um, and that's another of, of uh, piece um, that, that we've been working on, um, it then depends on how many, what happens to the baby in the NICU and how many complications and how, how many morbidities the child um, suffers, right? So the child that goes through without developing BPD, without developing serious ROP, without um, significant brain injury, has a much better, even all other things being equal, gestational age, even gender um, and um, birth weight, has a very different prognosis than one who manages to pick up all three. So um, so that's with respect to that, you know, it's not one type of outcome for a particular baby. It even for that single baby changes over time. Um, as I said, with the families, I, I never have just, uh, apart from a single antenatal consult where I may not necessarily have been then the attending later on. Um, it's, um, it's always more than one conversation, right? And also it's a mix of, or should be a mix of um, talking to parents directly at the bedside as you pass by or during rounds, um, as opposed to having formal scheduled um, quiet in a you know separate room or something um, uh, uh, sessions with them. And um, as for yes, do I talk about long term problems? If uh, absolutely, or did I? I should use the past tense, of course. Um, and I think um, parents appreciate um, the combination of empathy and honesty, and they recognize it very quickly. And one of my um, formative experiences, even though I was definitely already relatively senior, was actually an experience in Philadelphia where I came on um, 
relatively late in the course of an individual child who had had a very rough and problematic course and was already at least two months old and clearly had a very um, concerning prognosis. And I was now inheriting this child as attending from my colleagues, um, but I felt and I needed to um, make sure while I was looking after this family for the next two weeks that it was actually a single mother, that the mother had um, a sense of what was ahead of her and her baby, which I wasn't sure um, was the case. So I tried to, um, I, I booked a meeting and she was at, with our social worker and the bedside nurse the way it usually sort of was arranged. And um, she was very reluctant to even agree to the meeting and said she didn't really need a meeting. She she knew everything. She had updates every day. Yeah, she knew how much oxygen, you know, what the ventilator said, because the kid was still ventilated, what the ventilator settings was. But I said, yeah, I, I know all of, I know you know, but it's just, I want to talk about the big picture. Anyway, fast forward, and she finally did come. And the dynamics were that she was sitting at the extreme other end of the room and was really almost hostile for the first um, 10, 15, even 20 minutes of what turned out to be at least a one-hour conversation. And fast forward, and by the end of the conversation, she came up and gave me a big hug. And said thank you um, for 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 helping me see uh, see it this way, mm-hmm. and um, so that's why I'm saying you know this is just one single experience, but there were many similar ones, maybe not quite as dramatic, but um, people appreciate uh, and they sense you know whether you are caring about them, but also whether you are telling them the truth as much as you know it themselves, that you also need to be able to admit what you don't know and the Mm -hmm. uncertainty of everything you say. You know, you never, ever, ever say your baby won't walk or talk because you don't know. Nobody ever knows that, Mm -hmm. right? None of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And... To, to follow up on that question, and I'm sorry for for the tough questions, but I feel like we are well into our interview, so I feel like I have the right to ask. But our our field of neonatology has really shifted. I feel like from its its early years, especially in the in the 60s and 70s, where really death was something that was prevalent, to a situation where our survival rates are really quite remarkable. But instead of really struggling with uh, mortality, we have to talk about these things of long term outcomes. I am wondering, Dr. Schmidt, how has your perspective on life and death in the NICU evolved over the course of your career um, from, from when you were a junior attending to when you were closer to, uh, to retirement? Well, yes, mortality rates have changed and disability rates, not really. Um, so I don't think... I, you put me on the spot a little bit, Ben, but I, I don't think my view on um, on those two outcomes, death and disability in its of itself has changed so much. I've always so I you know, I don't talk about this very often, but my own sister died um soon after birth. Um 
at at 38 weeks when I was seven years old. So mm. I know firsthand what a death of a baby means in a family and how a family in some ways never recovers from that trauma. So death has always been important to me, but so has disability. And I haven't personally in the family experienced it, but I've seen many, many, many families struggle with it. Um, some, you know, coping better than others. So I think both outcomes um, still matter. And uh, again, you know, you, you hear now that, you know, death is all important and, and there are, you know, people who say parents basically don't care about um, disability. That, that concerns me. It also concerns me. See, um, that people want to push the envelope ever further. And, you know, first it was, well, when I was training, it was 26 weeks or maybe 27 weeks. And, you know, we reasonably brought it down. I think the, the push now to, um, basically offer care to, to virtually all 22 weekers does concern me because I have not seen outcomes that would justify that. And I think before one goes into that gamble with a family, um, they need to be, you know, we don't even have enough data to inform them properly. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm watching that now from the sidelines. I'm not, I'm not in there to have to, um, to make, um, to, to be, to be part of those decisions. But, um, I, I, I do believe that, um, there is a bit of a crusade going on right now. What, what do you say then? I'm going to be devil's advocate just because I'm curious about your your answer. What do you say to people who are advocates of of pushing the envelope, as you say, and who are arguing that what we are seeing now, especially with high mortality rate, high rates of of disability, that these are the growing pains, and that over time our outcomes will get better because that's what the field has shown that outcomes have gotten better for every gestational age group over the years. And so those 22 weekers in a few years will have much better outcomes. Well, as long as they have that same conversation with the family, you know, mm. you may be, you, you're right now in that um, because um, I, I think it's a difference if you push the envelope at 27, 26 or 25 weeks, then pushing the envelope at 22 and maybe next 21 weeks because, um, I mean, the developmental stage is just getting, you know, so extremely different. And also the technical difficulties mm-hmm. of, um, you know, intubation may not may, may, may be the easiest of them for, to find reliable access, you know. Uh, venous access uh, for 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 these children, um, and um, I think if you have if you if if you have those honest conversations, I mean, years ago I was part. I was still at McMaster in in Canada when we knew we were looking after a twenty two six seven week infant because the parents insisted, uh, and we knew it was exactly that because it was an IVF pregnancy and. Um, 
has the child done well? No, not so much, but um, yeah. survived. Uh, but, you know, um, that family um, was very adamant after all the information we could put to them, including that we'd never looked after a baby quite this immature. Um, so that's okay as long as the healthcare system can come up with the funding because that becomes super expensive. It also ties up bids and resources in NICUs that are often already operating at the limit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I have a feeling right now, maybe I'm interpreting it incorrectly, that there is sort of a bandwagon going around that more and more people, like some colleagues, tell me that they feel pressured mm. to um, to 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 jump onto this bandwagon. I, I appreciate you you giving giving the the, the sensor. Rooney, I'm gonna. Yeah, I just say it was just absolutely fascinating discussion. I, I agree, and I think this is a a conversation that needs to be going uh, ongoing. But um, also, I was going to say. Then how do you and Daphne ever end these podcast uh, interviews with uh, with the greats? So we we try we try to jump yeah. on lighter topics, which I yeah. I have ready, but because um, I thought if I asked some of those questions early on, this was going to be a doom <laughs> and gloom uh, podcast. So I left them for for the the the, the second half of it. I wanted to ask you one thing: is that when I look at your career and the number of publications, and not just the number of publications, but the quality of the work you've done, I think. Um, it would it, the question that we have, I think, for me, and I'm sure for other young attendings, how do you balance everything, uh, whether it is life, whether it is work, um, and still yet achieve this consistent, this consistent excellence throughout your work? What are your what are your your tips that you can share with us? So, the first thing I need to say is I've been very fortunate in 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 many ways um in um in that i have been able to have um positions in superb institutions and um uh, been able to um have protected time um mm-hmm. uh through you know in the us of course you have to buy your protective time but for that you have to first buy it right so you have to succeed with the grants which we also but i also had an endowed chair in philadelphia so that helps as well so again i've been very fortunate um in that regard that i had what i consider just the right balance between all three i truly did all three clinical service uh teaching which was for me inevitably connected with clinical service also um, because I was always teaching trainees and uh, of all types, and you know, um, in in academic hospitals um, and research. Um, so, um, so that's the first thing to say. Mm. The second is that, um, in a way, it has obviously some downsides too. But being married to another academic neonatologist. Um, has also been uh, helpful in in many ways because you understand each other. You understand when people are tired. You understand when people, um, you know, um, need need the quiet time. But you also can bounce things off and 
um, even the politics uh, sometimes. Um, and um, so uh, you can travel now. We mostly travel together because people tend to invite us together. So um, we've been in many ways very fortunate. Um, work-life balance is very simple. We don't have children. And we chose, that was not an easy decision, but we chose many years ago um, that we, we, we were, we had no family in Canada and in North America anywhere. Um, we were both in neonatal intensive care. I mean, if one partner has a job that is more flexible and adaptable, um, that may make it a lot easier right off the bat. But we both wanted to do academic neonatology and the models I had seen of having your kids raised by au pairs or nannies who sort of rotate through the household wasn't attractive to me at the time either. Mm-hmm. So um, that was, if you will, our sort of sacrifice, um, although we made a very conscious joint decision in that way. I, I don't think some, that that one can have everything. Sometimes, you know, you have to make difficult choices. I, I know people, young women in Philadelphia, some of our trainees who are fantastic academics and um, have lovely children and manage to combine it, but the circumstances may be different. The spouse may have a different job. The family support may be in at least within the same continent and so forth. But that is sort of where I would see ourselves, Harish and me, having that sort of our uh, concession to to our academic careers. Mm -hmm. I understand. Yeah, I was just going to say – Looking over your CV, like Ben said, obviously they're very impressive, everything you've done and, and throughout. And I noticed about five years after finishing um, uh, your fellowship, you got your master's in, in clinical epidemiology and biostatistics. And a lot of our listeners are uh, trainees or early career. Uh, how important do you feel as though it, it is to pursue additional training uh, in order to do the type of work that you're doing, whether it's a master's in in, in ethics, masters in epidemiology, public health, and such. So it depends. I think whether or not you need an additional degree depends totally on what you want to do. Um, so if you want to go into administration and um, that sort of thing, maybe an MBA is is one way to go. If you um, as you know, want to do primarily education. There are masters in in that area as well. For me, uh, you know, and McMaster was at the time basically where evidence based medicine was born, right? So uh, it was an absolutely fantastic time, and um, there weren't that many people because it wasn't available. Now many people do masters in clinepi and statistics, but. Uh, and basically all our trainees who want to do clinical research in Philadelphia have done it. Um, but in our generation, um, you know, McMaster was one of the first places where that mm. was even possible. And we did our degrees. We started them in, in the mid 1980s. So for me, uh, that training and the environment, uh, at McMaster in that department was a revelation. 
was an absolute revelation. And without it, I could not have done the trials. I was actually starting in a completely different research track, um, doing actual whole animal studies and things that um, I was doing because it was connected to the work I'd done in Germany for my MD thesis. But I wasn't happy with where that was going, even though I had grant support for it and everything, even a career award. But I had always been both in Germany in my pediatric training and also at Sick Children's in Toronto. I had always been uneasy um, about, um, you know, dogmatic uh, opinions and, you know, seniors who would say on rounds, in my experience, this is what we need to do kind of thing without providing any sound evidence. So I was always uneasy with that sort of approach, um, but I didn't have the tools to challenge it intelligently. And the first thing that happened with the training at McMaster, which then ended in the in the Masters uh, of Clinepi, um, was that it gave me a toolbox um, to um, ask questions more intelligently. And then, of course, I got into the environment in which it was possible, uh, and with that training, to uh, design and run the trials as we did. I couldn't, I couldn't have done it without that training and without that environment. So, it, you know, whether people should pursue extra training to get back to what was really the core of your question um, depends totally on where they want to go. And for many people who want to be good clinicians and look after babies and do a good job, it may not be necessary at all to um, to do an extra degree. It it depends, mm -hmm. right, on 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 the I goals. Like the an analogy of toolbox that you're building your toolbox for the um, path that you're pursuing. Excellent, thank you, Dr. Schmidt. Our last question for for this interview will 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 be related to that in terms of um, the trainees and the young faculty listening. Um, you're such a, a great mentor for for people embarking on this journey. What are some of your advice um, in order to fulfill the passion and and be successful? Are you asking specifically the path of a clinical investigator, of a clinical researcher, or uh, no? Any? I think I think m more general, more of a of a general sense of embarking in the field of neonatology, which is a field that is stressful, that is demanding. Um, and I think that applies to both academia and clinic. I mean, it's demanding in every aspect of it. I think if you are a researcher, uh, conducting research in neonatology is extremely difficult. If you are a clinician, it's a, it's a field that takes a significant emotional toll on you that has high expectations. There's very little margin for error. So I think for people who are embarking on this journey um, and who are early in their careers, um, I'm just wondering if you have any pieces of advice as we as we close out this interview. Well, the obvious first answer would be that um, um, you know, even if you're 30 or something, by the time you you end your fellowship or something, you have at least um, 30 plus years, uh, if not more. In the U.S., people don't seem to retire. I've noticed. Um, so, uh, you have a, you have many years, uh, 
um, ahead of you. Um, so you better enjoy what you're doing, right? Uh, you cannot, uh, embark on such a path for, um, reasons of, uh, oh, it's paying well or, you know, I mean, that helps if it's paying well, but, the main reason has to be that you enjoy what you're doing. So um, regardless of what exactly that is in terms of is it purely clinical, is it a mix with education, administration, research, what have you. Um, and the second piece of advice would be um, don't be afraid to change and to reverse course if you run into an obstacle that seems insurmountable. Um, I mentioned that I was actually on a completely different trajectory with my research in, in sort of hematology applied to the newborn and lab-based. And it was getting to the point that I had learned these techniques for my doctoral thesis 10 or so years earlier in Germany, but I couldn't come up with meaningful questions to answer in the baby. And that's a problem, right? So I changed track against the advice of quite a few people when I was already um, over 40. So um, I um, wrote uh, my first big trial grant for what was then the Medical Research Council of Canada and is now Canadian Institutes of Health Research um, when I was almost in my mid-40s. So it's not ever too late to change when you find that you're stuck um, because just imagine you do this, what you don't enjoy and what you feel is a dead end for another 20 or 30 years. Um, and... The last piece of advice that probably every program director in, in the country will, will come down on me for is, um, I was once in a big meeting with a lot of fellows in the room and I got a lot of laughter when I said, I never had a five year plan and I never did have a five year plan. <laughs> I, uh, I had a sense of, uh, you know, but these minutiae or, or that, that people expect people to fill in the blanks when they can't, right? And how can you decide what research you want to do when you just start in neonatology? And so, um, yeah, I honestly never had a, a true formal five-year plan. And um, that doesn't mean I didn't have a sense of direction, but um, nothing too too detailed at all. Yeah, I changed country and and institution at age fifty five mm -hmm. when I moved to Philadelphia as a full professor. So, don't be afraid uh, to change. Yeah, I Thanks. love it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Barbara Schmidt. Thank you for making the time to be with us on the podcast today. It was a very enlightening interview. Um, we wish you the best. And uh, thank you so much, Rooney. Thank you for co-hosting with me today. Um, I had a great time. Yeah. Thank you both thank you, Barbara. very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you